Hey, the series of messages that we're going through right now, um, Reshaped, it's focused on the idea that every individual, every person has been imprinted, has been pressed upon by the influences around them. So it could be family, it could be genetic, it can be uh, history, the time in history in which we, we live, it could be socioeconomic, all of these, many more, have imprinted upon us and have shaped our life one way or the other, for the good or for the bad. They've, they've impressed upon us and, and molded us in a, in a way. But for the Christian, what Scripture teaches is those influencers don't determine who we actually become. They definitely have influenced us, us has, has imprinted upon us, but we are actually being reborn. In fact, Jesus says that in the book of John chapter 3. Uh, he talks about, you know, the, the Son has come and, and actually other places within in Scripture. I have the reference wrong. But when he's speaking uh, to Nicodemus, one of uh, the religious leaders of the day, he says, listen, unless you're born again, you can't come into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus struggles with this. He's like, how can a person go back into his mother's womb and then come back out? I mean, thinking very literally, right? He's just stuck with this idea. How, do you, how can you be born again? And, and Jesus says, no, you're, you're thinking of physical birth. Because unless you're born of the Spirit, then you, you can't experience the kingdom of God. And, and so this is kind of what this idea of being reshaped is about. It's this idea that we've been imprinted, we've been parented, we've been formed all the while that we're growing up and, and coming through life, he says, but listen, this is what happens when you receive Jesus Christ and you come into the kingdom of God and you receive his spirit, is that you are born again and you begin to be reshaped by the work of the spirit and by the work of the scriptures and, and by what God is doing. You begin to be shaped more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so your influencers up to the point of redemption and coming to Christ don't determine who you become. And, and that is a liberating message. I hope that you hear that. That should be such a liberating, liberating message that I'm just not the output, the product of all the inputs into my life. I'm not just this mass of, I have to do whatever has been done to me. I just, I've become this person and I just have no control over it. It's such a gospel message, a good news message that because of Jesus Christ, we can be reshaped into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We can, be, we can experience newness of life, and we can be reparented. And that's not a, to say that your parents did it all wrong or mine did. It's to say that we weren't formed. They, they aren't the perfect parents, and, and I'm not a perfect parent. And so my kids weren't totally reshaped into the image of Christ through my parenting, that all of us come under the authority of Christ and the reshaping of, of His work. And so this... This reshaping, what it does is it allows us to become whole and live in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's God's heart for you. That's, that's his, his desire in loving you just so thoroughly and just all the way through and through is so that you could live out what Jesus said is the abundant life. Now, the, the abundant life isn't, you know, we, we hear sometimes in, in churches the abundant life is health and wealth. Everything goes well for you. You, you know, everything is perfect in your life. And, and listen, that's not the gospel message, honestly. I mean, God loves you. He does take care of you. But here's the abundant life is that you would be in perfect peace with God and with those around you, that you would be at perfect rest in your life, that you would find sufficiency in every situation that you go into. 
you would never have this sense of panic or anxiety or lack, but you would just be at perfect rest and peace and just say, I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm finding myself in complete satisfaction, either in plenty or in want. But I'm never left where I don't have peace and the fullness of Christ in my life. That's the abundant life that Jesus wants for us, where we're experiencing the kingdom of God day after day. Well, the first message, we had this question, and we continue. Each week, I continue to raise this question. Am I putting on display the reshaping of Jesus Christ's influence upon my life, or am I displaying only the collection of other influences upon my life? So what do people see? What comes out of my life, right? Because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart is what people see, those actions, the outward manifestation of what's already in my heart. And so if I'm being reshaped and reformed, then out of my life, what people should see is Christ's influence in my life. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, kind of a paraphrase, it's important for me to not become so well adjusted to my culture that I fit into it without thinking. Instead, I fix my attention on God so that I can be changed from the inside out. And that's the concept behind Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then last week, we challenged that idea that's present in Jesus' time and it's present in current church and Christian culture, is that revival will come someday. Revival will come when the right conditions exist and then, then we can join in. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're waiting for the conditions to just set up so that then you can go, oh, now we're going to have revival. Now God's really working. We're waiting on those conditions so that we can join a revival. Jesus told the disciples this little saying that was common in their day. He says, you say four months and then the harvest. Jesus says, I tell you, look up, the harvest is now. <laughs> he says, you're, you're reaping things you didn't sow. There's things happening in the kingdom of God all the time. There's sowing and reaping happening simultaneously. So revival isn't something you're waiting on. The revival is here, not because you planted, but because it's always revival season if you're living in one. If you want to see a revival, start living in one. You initiate it. You begin it by nurturing and cultivating that life in Christ, spending time in the Word, spending time with the Lord, praying when He leads you to pray, being quiet and listening when He wants to speak into your life by, by responding when the Spirit gives you a prompting. You, you can start living in that revival and not wait for it to come to you. You just begin to step into the revival that He has already for you. And, and so this morning, now we go into Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn there or pull out a, a phone or a, a tablet and go to, on your uh, Bible app, uh, Matthew 16, and Jesus is having a conversation with Pharisees and Sadducees about their desire for him to prove who he is. And this happened all the time, you know, because they were in disbelief about Jesus saying, well, I came from the Father, you know, I come down from heaven. They were always challenging that notion with him, like, we know who you are, you're Jesus, you're, you know, Joseph and Mary's son, we know who your siblings are. And, and, and so the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were always saying, you know, prove it. You say you're, you know, really something, you say you're from God, you know, give us, give us uh, proof. And so this is one of those situations. They wanted this sign. But Jesus understands something about people telling him to prove it, is that once is never enough. He was proving it all the time. He was constantly healing the sick and, 
uh, delivering, bringing deliverance for, from demonic oppression. And they were blind to that. That wasn't good enough. They wanted him to prove what they wanted him to prove. Okay, that's fine, but now prove it in this way. They weren't going to be satisfied regardless of, of what he did. And so Jesus really challenges this idea of them needing him to validate his lordship, that he somehow had to prove to them who he was. And so Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we'll, we'll start there and then we'll, we'll pray as we go deeper into it. It says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So that's a great starting point for us is this kind of uh, uh, conflict, that this conversational conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They ask for a sign, and he pushes back against it. He says, wait, wait a minute, you, you can look in the sky and you kind of know what's happening in the weather. You can predict kind of what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow. He goes, but, but you don't know what's happening in your midst in the kingdom of God? Of course, again, he's speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees. He's essentially saying, how is it that you don't understand what God is doing even though you're the religious leaders? But, oh, you're great at predicting weather, <laughs> You can tell what's happening all around you by looking up into the sky, but he goes, you don't, you're not catching on with what God is doing here. So he sets the table for a discussion that he's about to engage in with the disciples as well. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts to hear and kind of join in this conversation that Jesus is having. Lord, we thank you so much that uh, the words that we read in Scripture aren't words on a page, but they are living and active, that, it, that you're... Your word says that you can speak to us right where we're at this morning. You can address things that are on our heart and in our thoughts. And that, uh, Lord, we're not just downstream in history and, and we're just kind of living out vicariously through the disciples thousands of years ago. But, Lord, we get to enter into this vibrant faith, this vibrant life, this abundant life that you have carved out and, and gone ahead and provided for us. And so, Lord, as we go deeper into the Scripture this morning in this conversation that you had, I pray that you would help us to see where we fit in that, where you would be speaking to us. And so, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to teach us from these passages and, and uh, you would direct our thoughts, guide our, our thoughts and our affections as we spend time with you this morning in the Word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that's the first part of Matthew 16, this conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees. You kind of see what he's saying. He's, he's like, I'm not going to give you a sign. And the one sign he does say that he's going to give him is the sign of Jonah, which is his, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. He's going to be in the tomb three days as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, and then he came out. So Jesus is saying, that's the same sign. I'm going to be in the tomb three days, and then I'm going to come out. I'm going to resurrect. Of course, they don't have a frame of reference for that, but he just kind of drops that in there so that for our, our benefit, right, that we can say, this is, this, 
he's able to hold his word. He's able to uh, call what he's going to do and then follow through with it. We jump down farther in the passage, Matthew 16, 13 through 19, and he goes on from the, the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, and he goes on and he has this conversation with the disciples. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so again, we just pause there. We stop in that portion of Scripture, and it's really a powerful contrast between the conversation we first read with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then this one with the disciples, comparing Jesus from what they wanted with this signs, and what the disciples have is this bold declaration. They said, prove yourself, then we might give you the benefit of belief, the religious leaders. The second, the disciples, Jesus asked them, who do, you say, who do people say I am? Followed up with, who do you say that I am? So he asked both questions of the disciples. What are you hearing around? And then what do you actually say? What's your view of it? Again, the communication to Jesus, the first go around from the Pharisees and Sadducees, will be the judge of who you are. Do you get that? They hold this sense of right to tell Jesus who he is. We'll tell you who you are. You show us some signs, and then we'll tell you who you really are. Boy, what arrogance, right? <laughs> what arrogance is there? But they felt that empowerment. They, uh, that was such a, a trademarker or a characteristic of the religious leaders of that time. And Jesus continually came against that and confronted that and pushed against that, this idea that they were entitled to have dominion over people and what they said went and they had the authority to tell people who God was and, and how he did things and they shouldn't listen to anybody else but them. They had this authority and Jesus was constantly pushing up against that. We'll be the judge of who you are. Show us something and we'll tell you what your place is. Jesus refuses to grant them that authority to affirm or deny him, he just simply says, I'm going to give you a sign down the road of my resurrection, and then you'll, you'll be able to decide, make a decision based on that. The next part, this, is, well, this one's really interesting because Jesus solicits the input from the disciples first about what the crowd says about him. Now, keep in mind, Jesus knows what the crowd is saying about him, right? He doesn't need the disciples to give him this input. There's peop people, the, the buzz is all around him of who he is, you know, could this be John the Baptist coming back? Is this, is this Elijah coming forward? Is, is this Jeremiah or one of the other prophets? You know, he hears all this buzz that's happening, but he solicits from them, what are you hearing about me? We go back to this idea of imprinting, right? What's the influences that's coming into your life that people say who I am? You're hearing it. I want to hear you say the things that you're hearing about me. I want you to be able to identify 
what the culture around you is saying about who I am. Boy, isn't that powerful for us today? (laughs) If I was to grab a handheld and walk around, who does the culture around us say Jesus is? Here's some of the things I've I've already seen. This one always, I'm just dumbfounded. Uh, The people that say, oh, he was kind of a figure in a story, a religious story. I I just kind of want to, you know, pound my head a little bit. It's like, wait, wait, wait. You think he's a fictional character in a story? It's like, where do you get your history from? I'm confused. Like, there's so much historical reference to Jesus that he was an actual real person. He's not a fairy tale person. But there's people in the culture that believe, oh, yeah, he's kind of this, you know, story that you read in Scripture about some guy, and do you think he's real? No, he's, he's just, you know, it's like, what? You know, it just blows my mind. He's, he's a real person. He's in history. He's, you know, there's more records of Jesus' life and, and ability to validate, verify that he was living and, and had a life and he was present through different events in Jerusalem than there is for many of our modern historical figures, even those in modern U.S. history, or, you know, U.S. history is modern, I guess, is the way that I'm saying that. So 200 years ago, you know, recognizing there's more history of Jesus than some of the people that have lived just a couple hundred years ago. You go into the culture, and then they, they say, well, he was a good man, <laughs> right? I, I, I love that, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about that. Basically, he's like, Jesus wasn't just a good man. Because if you just say he's a good man, you, you forget the part where he said that he was the Son of God. You forget his claims. And he actually allowed people to go to their death claiming that he was God. A good man doesn't do that. <laughs> a good man, if he wasn't God, would say, it was all a hoax. <laughs> don't, don't give your life. Don't, don't ruin your whole livelihood on my behalf. It was all a hoax. Go back to your families. Go take care of them. Jesus didn't leave room for himself just to be a good man. He said, I'm the son of God. I'm the one whom you've been waiting for. I'm the resurrected king, the Lord of lords. Forever uh, I have been and forever I will be. And so you make your decision based on that. But he didn't leave room for us to say, well, he's a good man. He did good things. Right? But that's what the culture says around us. He was, he was just a, a good man. So Jesus, and we could go on, but Jesus asked that about the disciples, and they say, well, some, they're saying these things about you. And then Jesus gets very direct with the disciples. He brings the conversation in, and he says, but who do you say I am? Now that we've walked together, now that we've been together through this time, who do you say that I am? Everyone else may have their view, but I want you to say who, you are, who I am. Peter's response, he declares, he says, you are the Christ. You're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that we've been anticipating. God's holy one. In other words, we're not waiting for anybody else to show up at this point. We've been waiting. Our people have been waiting. And now you're here. We recognize you are the one. Our eyes are set on you. If, if you aren't the one, we're all miserable. <laughs> we're all in trouble because we are all in on you being God's holy one. That's the type of declaration that Peter's making here. Sometimes it seems a little more casual than that, but it is, a, it is a bold declarative statement about who Jesus is. 
You're, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the Christ. Jesus' affirmation from this is he says, listen, you didn't come up with this on your own. This isn't the imprinting of the world around you. This isn't the upbringing you had in your family. He says, Peter, for you to get to this place where you say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, that came from the Father to you. That was revealed to you from heaven. Do you see the contrast here between the Pharisees and what they wanted? They said, give us a sign and then we'll tell you who you are, right? He asked the disciples, who do you say I am? The, the crowd, who does the crowd say I am? They say, well, they're pulling from history. They're pulling from wherever they can conjure up that you may have come from after reading from figures in the past of their faith heroes of their faith, that they should expect to come. But Jesus then pauses and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you see in me? And this insight that Peter has from heaven, he says, you're the Christ. You're the Holy One of God. Hmm. Then this conversation comes back with Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Peter, <laughs> listen, you're the rock. I now call you rock, and on this rock, my church will go forward, and the gates of hell, when we say prevail against it, we sometimes think that it's the gates of hell pushing against the kingdom. No, it's the gates of hell are trying to defend itself from the kingdom, and they won't be able to withstand. The kingdom of God will just mow right over any resistance that the kingdom of, of the demonic has. Amen? So that's the picture that Jesus is saying. He says, Peter, he says, you, you didn't get this from yourself. You're listening to the Father. Peter, you're not just listening to the prophets of old and the teachings that maybe you grew up around and, and just regurgitating somebody that you think I could be. You're not listening to the religious leaders around you who are telling you that we should be demanding signs from me. You heard from the Father and you saw it of who I was. You not only read the skies, but you read the kingdom and the spiritual climate, and you were able to say, you're it. You're the chosen one. And God said, yeah, Peter, you, you've got it. I'm going to, upon you, upon the rock, upon this declaration that the kingdom has come, I'm going to build my church, and there's no resisting it. Hell's gates aren't going to be able to withstand when the kingdom is on the move and just goes right through it. So the interpretation sometimes is that Peter, and we see this in, uh, in, in historical, historically through churches, we say Peter has this place as he's over the church, and, and so he has kind of this, in terms of sainthood, he's overseeing the church. And, and there's certainly a special declaration that Jesus is saying about Peter, but He's not exclusively saying to Peter, listen, all of the church is going to be built off of you. He's saying, out of this recognition, this declaration that I am the Christ, my church is built upon that. Peter, you declared it upon this foundation, the kingdom of God moves forward. And there's no resisting it at all. So this is not the wishy-washy, prove-it belief that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. They weren't sitting back with their arms folded. Oh, you think you're something. 
will you show us something and we'll tell you whether we really are impressed with you or not. It's also not the, the culture impression of the, the people around them who are saying, well, they just think you're maybe a historical figure raised to life again or come again. This is a revelation from heaven. And they say, we'll stand on our own in this belief, even if nobody else does. Here's, here's a couple of things that I, I really want us to, to see out of this. Because this type of declaration, this recognition that the kingdom of God has come, is sometimes missed even by us. Even though we have the benefit of thousands of years after the resurrection, and we've seen Jesus moving in people's lives historically and even modern day where he's at work bringing the same things he did when he was walking on the earth, deliverance and healing, over, overcoming sin, overcoming sickness, and he's at work. Here's, here's one of the things that we need to be reminded. The kingdom overcomes even when hell holds power in this world. The kingdom overcomes even when hell holds power in this world. Here's why this is important. is We can get this mindset that if the culture around us is influenced by the gates of hell, by demonic influence, by the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of God, we think, oh, there's nothing that can be done here. There's, there's too much. The, the people who don't recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, they have too much power and authority. And so we're just subject to whatever they push down towards us and say, you just have to live with it. And we can become this sense of we're just victims in the world around us. We're, we're pawns being moved around by those in authority over us. And we just can't really do much. Here's, here's, here's a reality that God is consistent in. He accomplishes his purposes without using the structures of this world. I mean, he's over them. He has authority over them. But he doesn't require them in order to accomplish his purposes. Our tendency is to say, hell holds power and authority in this world in different places. And so we kind of have to back away and just concede that that's not a place where God's going to work because, well, hell's at work there. And so... We just have to surrender and let them do their thing and we'll just kind of, you know, hide back. That's, that's not at all the message that Jesus had. If you go back in time and you look at the world in which Jesus lived, <laughs> who were the Christians? They were this small group, the, the 12, but then another 70 and at times up to 4,000, but then they drove, you know, they, they went away and then it came back down to the, the small group that Jesus had around him. So they weren't part of the Jewish majority, right? They were, they were what would have been deemed kind of a cult group, a, a sect of Judaism because they weren't following the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They weren't doing things. He wasn't doing things the way they said it had to happen. He was constantly being uh, corrected and, and called out for healing on the Sabbath and, and uh, not doing things the way they would have seen, right? So they weren't part of that majority, that that majority, which actually wasn't in control. Rome was in control at the time. And so even in Jerusalem, you had the Romans who had the real authority, the power. Then you had the, the Jewish religious leaders who were the others in authority. And then you had Jesus and his disciples. I mean, we're getting down here, aren't we? In terms of how much authority, how much, how much power did they have in the system? How much 
ability did they have to use the structures that existed in the world around them to get their message out? Not much. (laughs) Talk about a minority. Here here Jesus is ministering and the gate and and hell had so much authority working and and moving in the culture around him and even in the, the religious leaders around him. He didn't have influence there. What he had was the kingdom of God. And he's moving with the kingdom of God into this place. And he's saying, it's, it's not resisting me. <laughs> he's advancing the kingdom even though he didn't have the ability to do everything he wanted in every structure that existed. This is important for us to understand because we tend to think that if we don't have the power control, if we don't hold the power seat, we're kind of bound up. We're kind of handcuffed in some way. We're limited in what we can do. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. The gates of hell aren't resisting you. The only thing holding you back, the only thing holding me back from bringing the kingdom come is me recognizing that He's the chosen one, the Messiah, and He has the authority to go into all the world and proclaim the good news and change lives, whether we have the power seat, we have the power structures or not. The next one is the kingdom overcomes even when my vision of the future is unclear. Boy, this is a tough one for, for so, so many of us, is that it's hard to move forward when we don't know what's next, right? Sometimes we feel paralyzed right where we're at, and we just don't feel like we can go forward because we don't see what's, how it's all going to work out. But we use this term a lot in, in Christianity, faith. Faith. And we, we use it in terms of, oh, I have a faith. I have faith in God. I have a belief. We use it sometimes, faith is interchanged with belief. But, but here's a, a great application to this idea of faith. Is stepping forward or stepping into something based on the character of God without knowing the outcome before I step into it. I'm stepping into what it is that's supposed to happen. I'm stepping into tomorrow without a completely clear picture of what tomorrow looks like, but I'm confident in God's goodness and His character. So I'm stepping forward in faith and not in fear. I'm stepping forward knowing that the kingdom of God is at work, even though I don't exactly know what that looks like tomorrow or 30 days from now or six months from now. My faith says, I'm at peace and I'm okay. I can still walk in that abundant life even though I don't have the ability to map out the next four weeks or four years. I can be kept in perfect peace. The kingdom overcomes even when my vision of the future is unclear. Just because we can't see the way forward doesn't mean that God is also somehow confused. When you're confused about what's next, you and I shouldn't ever equate that that God is confused about what's next. God's never wringing His hands and saying, oh, How is this going to unfold? It's a mystery to me. (laughs) I can't picture what's going to happen next. No, God is confident in his understanding of what's going to happen in the future. He sees the beginning from the end. Now, here's where this gets us into trouble sometimes. We say, well, then why doesn't God just change it all? (laughs) Why doesn't he just make it and reveal it all to me? Why doesn't he just do it in a way that it's clear and understandable to me too, since he already knows what's happening in the future. And I pull back from about three minutes ago the word faith. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So often, I want control so that I can determine what's going to happen next. So that I can feel comfortable and safe in my knowing what's happening. Instead of being able to trust God and lean into Him and know more about His character and who He is. The kingdom overcomes even when my vision of the future is unclear. You know, one more thing about this is that this is true for the church as well. We often will do this to the hand-wringing about the next generation. You hear all these reports, the church is dying, the church is this, the church is good, we're not going to survive this. Can I, can I just express how arrogant that probably sounds to God? God, your church is going to crumble. The next generation is, isn't capable. They're, they're not ready to take over. The churches are, do you know our view of what God is doing in the world so often surrounds our world, not the world. So our view of where the church is at in the kingdom of God, it really gets narrowed down to such a small little spot. And, and yeah, we want to pray for the kingdom of God to continue to go forward. We need to continue to disciple. We need to continue to see the kingdom of God move in our circle. But listen, the kingdom of God as it moves around the world in ways that it has never been in all of history. Do you know that just because us in the United States, we're no longer a majority nation in terms of influence in the world. We used to be. Our, the ways that we sent out missionaries and that we would uh, evangelize in areas, we used to be a dominant force. Do you know that that has shifted? Actually, in the early 2000s, that shifted to South America and Africa. Do you know that they are evangelizing in places and reaching countries in ways that we in the United States never did and were never able? They are coming in some wonderful, amazing evangelists coming out of Africa and South America. And do you know that because of the way in which they grew up, oftentimes at poverty levels that we can't even fathom, it's easy for them to go into all these other countries and adapt and feel just right at home with beans and rice. And, and, you know, and they learn multiple languages. They grew up learning two or three languages often, their tribal language plus the language of the country. And so acquiring languages, they're much more adept at that. Whereas us, we tend to focus English only or maybe, you know, some of us are familiar with Spanish. And so look at, listen to this. We tend to look at that and we go, oh God, the church is dying. Nothing's happening. We're, we're stuck. And while in our culture and things that are happening here, we need to continue to pray. We need to continue to contend for what God wants to do here that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the whole world and God is moving and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. They're knocking down walls. The kingdom of God is knocking down walls in, in uh, the, the Arabic Peninsula. The kingdom of God is knocking down walls where we think, boy, nothing good can happen there. There's awesome things happening there. The, and the Lord is moving all around the world. And so even when my vision of the future and my vision of what God is doing is unclear, God's not confused. <laughs> he knows exactly what He's doing and He is on the move. The last one, the kingdom of God overcomes even when my circumstances don't change. Oh boy, this is hard. <laughs> but our world has to enlarge to see that while difficult for me, the glory of God can still come forward and be birthed even in the midst of me having difficult circumstances. 
This is countercultural for what for multiple generations in the American church that we've experienced is that, and we've even gotten to the point where we say, well, if God answers this prayer, then he's real. I'll acknowledge God if he changes this circumstance in my life. Do you hear that from the scripture earlier? The Pharisees, the Sadducees? Prove to us who you are. Then we'll tell you if you're the son of God. I I know this sounds harsh, but can you imagine how arrogant that sounds to God? God is God whether he changes your circumstances or not. Irrespective of the outcomes, the difficulties that you go through, the challenges you face in life, it's not that God is disassociated or he doesn't care about you. It's not that he's, he's not aware of what you're going through. It's just that he still gets to be God. He still gets to be Lord. He still gets to be Savior, even if your life circumstances don't change. He is bigger than me. He is bigger than what I'm going through. He's compassionate. He's understanding of what I'm going through. He's promised to be an ever-present help in my time of trouble, my time of need. He doesn't distance himself, but it also doesn't mean that he ceases to be Lord if my circumstances don't somehow change. So that difficult thing that you're going through, can I encourage you to not take the path of the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, Lord, I'll acknowledge you as Lord if you answer this prayer. But otherwise, I don't know who you are. Can I tell you that if you're going to mature fully in Christ, if you're going to really know God in his heart, you're going to have to acknowledge that sometimes he's not going to deliver you out of the circumstance. He's going to walk with you through the circumstance that you go through. And in that, you can know him a completely different way than you would have otherwise. The kingdom overcomes even when my circumstances don't change. You know, that's something you you think about the way that looks in our own parenting. And I'll finish with this, is that my my mom and stepdad, who I grew up with, they were incredibly sacrificial. (laughs) They worked so hard so that I could live a life that they never got to experience. They put in so many hours, and many of you, you had similar experiences growing up. You saw your parents work so, diff- so many hours, such difficult jobs, and give of themselves sacrificially so that their kids and the next generation could experience something, something different. So they, they sacrificed in ways so that they could be a blessing to me. Do you know that there are opportunities for you in this life? to sacrifice in ways, to go through challenges, to go through hardships so that you pass on your faith to a next generation. I don't mean you get to tighten a bow and just pass it to the next generation. I mean the example of your life living it out through a trial, through a hardship is a gift. It's a gift to those who look upon your life and they see your love for Christ and your commitment to Christ even if you don't get to see the deliverance out of the circumstance. You know, time and again, when people are most amazed at Christians, the the time that the testimony just shines brighter isn't when they find this deliverance. and, And I mean, that's great when God heals and delivers. But I run into so many people who are amazed 
And they say, I've been watching you go through the loss of a loved one. And I'm amazed at how you're taking comfort and you're finding peace even through that loss. I've been watching you go through this job transition when you were fired and just not knowing what's next. And I've been amazed at the way you've just pursued Christ and you've modeled what it means to live for Jesus even in that type of time. It's really been a testimony to me of your faith. Do you see that the kingdom overcomes even when my circumstances don't change because God is still God irrespective of what my circle, my immediate circumstances look like. Do I have that same mindset for those coming after me in the faith? Do I have that same mindset that Jesus is the Christ as Peter called out, you are the Christ, you are the one I've been waiting for? And then do I hear Jesus' response? Well done, son. Well done, daughter. This is not just because your parents believed it. This isn't just because you discovered it on your own by studying hard enough. This is revealed to you from your Father in heaven. This is revealed to you because the Spirit has shown you and you've stepped into it for yourself. That's your declaration because of who Jesus is to you.